Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. I actually think, and and for sure, this is the only time I will say this, I believe when we teach things that are in Scripture, we're teaching the most important things that can be taught. And I, when I teach them, I try. I try to be diligent to honor what they actually say, what God is trying to communicate to us, because I am convinced that this book, this Bible, this scripture, both Old and the New Testament, is God's revelation to us of who he is, of what his grand cosmic plan is, of the things that he wants us to know, the good news that he has for us. And I believe that every message we teach, if I'm honoring it, could be a life-changing message. Having said that, I think the message that we learned from John and the message tonight, it may be in my years of experience as a pastor, it may be the most important message I ever preach. I don't mean tonight specifically, I mean this message, which hopefully I preach a lot. But it may be the most important thing, the most life-changing, the most difficult to believe, and yet the most significant when we do. So with that set up, so just very quickly, some things, what do we know about John? Number one, we know he wrote the Gospel of John and four more books. Now, I want to say this because it's important and, and it's relevant and, and it's okay. I want to say that every single book of the Bible that, that where there was an authorship that was believed, that it, believed, it was written by a certain person, has been challenged as the years have gone on. And that's totally okay. As there's criticism, as there's new technology, as there's new documentation, as we find new manuscripts, there's always this, this desire to find out, is this really written by who we thought it was written for before? And I have no problem with that. I think we do want to be scientific. And, and frankly, there's not a single authorship of Scripture, aside from believing that it comes from God, there's not a single authorship of Scripture that would change my faith. If I discovered, for example, that John did not write the Gospel of John, that won't change the content of the Gospel of John. Having said that, there is an interesting that thing that happens, and that's that for some reason, as we get further and further and further away from the people who actually knew the people who wrote these works, as we get further and further away from the documentation that's there, as we become less and less and less qualified, we tend to get more and more certain that we're smarter than those who knew in the past. And so I have a tendency to lean towards the traditional authorship in most cases, Barring significant evidence, I have a tendency to lean toward the traditional authorship because there's often people who would have known better. And in the case of John and the Gospel of John, it's fascinating because John lived so long and wrote the Gospel of John so late in his life that there are actually people whose writings we know of who knew John. There's, you can follow a direct lineage of disciples of John and disciples of their disciples and disciples of their disciples, and they all for many centuries, believe that John is the author of the Gospel of John. So I think it makes sense to believe that. I say that because I know there's a lot of discussion, and if you happen to not believe this is true, it's okay. What we're going to share tonight is still relevant. But I think there's something fascinating about John being the author of the Gospel of John because of the way he writes the book. Because one of the things that is true is he never identifies himself as the author. Unlike some books like Paul or even the Gospel of Luke, John never says, hey, I wrote this and my name is John. What's interesting though, is he does say one thing really weird. At the end of the book, he says, the person who wrote this book is the person who wrote this book. And that seems like a weird thing to say, except I think it indicates that John actually knew that everybody knew who wrote the book. 
And it explains a little bit as to why he doesn't tell you his name. And we're going to get into that because all of this is very relevant to the lesson that we learned from John today. The fact that he doesn't use his name and yet identifies himself enough that he believes everybody knows who wrote this book. Why he would choose to do that is fascinating. So we're going to come back to that idea. The other four books, if you're curious, are, the, are uh, three letters that John wrote to the churches, presumably, or maybe to a specific person. It's hard to tell. First, second, and third John. Um, and then the book of Revelation, uh, the apocalyptic literature about the end times uh, that John claims to have written. One thing I will say as someone who's interested, who tends to look at things from a literary perspective, uh, English major and graduate, and, and just a guy who analyzes literature, uh, just enjoys doing that, oddly. As somebody who is that person, I will say that all four of these, five of these books, pardon me, do bear striking similarities in terms of style and authorship, and that's another reason I tend to see that way. John died in 100 AD, in his 90s. So we talked last week about how most of the, well, all of the other apostles were martyred. They were executed for the faith, so none of them lived as long or to as an olden age as John did. John apparently is the only one who did not die as a result of being killed under persecution. In fact, he lived so long that he lived long enough to see the persecution be overturned, at least officially. You can argue whether it actually ceased, but the governmental position of Rome changed before he died so that Christians were no longer outlaws, which is kind of an amazing thing that he lived through that whole period of persecution and into a time where it wasn't as great. He'd probably, so that puts him in his 90s, could have been 98, could have been 94, depends a little bit on how you read some other things, but in his 90s is when he died. The other thing is that means he lived long enough to disciple early church fathers. As I pointed out, we, he lived long enough that we actually know the names of people that he discipled and we have their writings in front of us. So there's a man named Polycarp and a man named Ignatius, both who claimed with great credibility that they were direct disciples of John, that John actually mentored, discipled them. I, that's just kind of an interesting thing for me to think of as a pastor. We all have mentors. We've all been discipled, thinking about being discipled by one of the apostles. It's just, it's just kind of amazing. We can actually follow the lineage further. Polycarp then mentors uh, or disciples an individual named Arrhenius. Arrhenius, for those of you who are history buffs, he's a really important church father. We know his name. We have his writings. And Arrhenius then disciples someone named Hippolytus, and he's a really big deal among the early church fathers. And again, all of these people in their documentation refer to John, to his teachings, and to the gospel as having been written by him. And these are essentially people who knew him or knew somebody who knew him less than six degrees here of John the Apostle. He not only lived long enough to disciple the early church fathers, he lived long enough to pastor a church that we know of, the church in Ephesus. So we know that Paul plants the church in Ephesus, spends some time there. Timothy pastors the church in Ephesus, but we actually know that John also spent some time leading the church in Ephesus as a pastor. Again, fascinating. Imagine the apostle John being your church pastor, right? You know, it's fascinating. I bet you still would have complained about him because that's just what we do. I wonder if people ever accuse John of not preaching, you know, what was true from scripture because that's an accusation we all give pastors to. There actually is one story about John, about a complaint that people had. This may be apocryphal. This was not necessarily something I would give huge credence to, but it's a great story. It tells us something about the way Paul, John was seen. It also tells us something, uh, I think, about us. And so there's this story in Ephesus that John was preaching, and he wouldn't preach all the time, but when because he was still traveling and doing other ministry. And, but when he would come in and he would preach, he would always preach on love your neighbor as yourself. This is how the story goes. 
that he would come in and every time he would preach on love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, do, let's love better, let's do better, he would say. And so he'd preach on that. And eventually, uh, after coming in and doing this over and over and over, there were like a group of people that came up to him. Maybe Polycarp was one of them. And they said to John, John, we love you, buddy. And, and you are such a great preacher. And we love your message on love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, we're certainly not going to say we're anti-love. You know, we really are in favor of this message. But you're John. You have seen so many things. You have walked with Jesus. There must be more things that you can teach us than just this. And John looks at them and says, oh, there are so many things, my children, that I long to teach you. And he says, as soon as we've got this one down, we'll move on to the next. It's a great story. I question the veracity of it, but it's a good story. And it again reminds us that at least this is, this is John. We know he had this, 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 he lived long enough to actually pastor this church in Ephesus. And that story also tells us something else about him. He is known as the apostle of love the John becomes known as the apostle of love because of his constant talking about love. Now, it's interesting when you read some of his letters, specifically 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, what you find out is he's, he's, no, he's no soft touch. That fiery heart that said, call fire down from heaven is still in there. And because it's in 1st John, he calls people sons of the devil and things like that that you might think of as not particularly soft phrases. And yet love is a recurring theme in all of his books. And there's a reason for that. What I want to do is to kind of get back to this idea. This will all tie together here as we keep going, but I want to get back to this idea of the Gospel of John. As we learn the lesson from John, it makes sense that we would learn from his Gospel. He wrote his Gospel late. He didn't have to write his Gospel. In other words, he was aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel. They were already circulating. They'd already been written. They clearly borrowed from each other, meaning that each of them was just sort of some minor additions, some changes, a little bit of a different perspective but they, they had the same stories to tell with a few exceptions. John's gospel is very different. It appears that he must have decided late in life that he wanted to write a gospel which gave us a new perspective, a different perspective. Didn't argue. He, he, he approved of the other gospels, which is why I say he probably didn't feel the need to have to write a gospel. People knew the story of Jesus. But he chose late in life to write this gospel. There's some indication, even documentation, from people like Polycarp and Arrhenius that he was begged and pleaded with and encouraged to write the gospel for years before he did. That there were those who kept saying to him, you have got to write your own gospel. And he was reluctant to do so, which for a man, again, son of thunder, formerly selfish, ambitious, why would you want to be that gospel writer? So what's interesting when he writes his gospel is he doesn't identify himself as the author. He goes out of his way not to say, hey, I'm John the Apostle, I walked with Jesus, I know what I'm talking about, here's my gospel. He doesn't identify himself by name, but he does something interesting, which frankly leaves us little doubt as to who he is. And what I want to do is I want to start with the last chapter of John. I want to show you how he identifies himself, and then I want to back up and talk about that a little bit, because believe it or not, there's a really important message here. So in John chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, this is after the resurrection. This is after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, Jesus has come back. And it's at a moment when, when Jesus has appeared and, he, and, he, and Peter and James and John and Andrew, they're all out fishing because their default when they don't know what to do is to go fishing. We all have our defaults, right? What do you like to do? That's what they do. So they're out fishing and Jesus comes and it's that story where he has, they've been fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. And he says, throw your net out on the other side of the boat. And they're all like, that's not how fishing works, but okay. 
And they throw their net out on the other side of the boat, and they catch so many fish. It's just unbelievable. The net's going to break. And they pull it up, and then Peter recognizes that it's Jesus, and he runs out of Jesus. And then Jesus and Peter have this beautiful, beautiful moment, which I promise we'll talk about when we get to Peter, because it's one of the most important moments in Peter's life. And then this happens. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to, to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. So here's what's interesting about this passage. John is giving all sorts of indicators of who he is without using his name. He says, he just says he's a disciple who was with Peter during this story. Well, we know there were only a few. They were the fishermen. We also know, he says, that this was the disciple who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, who's going to betray you? We also know, he said, that this is the disciple that people had a rumor they believed he would live forever. All of these things may not sound conclusive to us, but for people around the time, for people looking at John's gospel, they are as clear a marker of who he is as any. My point is, even though he doesn't use his name, he's not trying to hide. He's not trying to hide who he is. He's not trying to write an anonymous book. The reason he's not using his name has nothing to do with wanting to remain secret. Because if he did, he wouldn't have given all these indications. He is being very clear about who he is. We know, he goes on, he says, we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So he identifies that he, the gospel writer is, that he's this person with all these qualifications, but he never identifies him by name. So what do we know from this list here? We know he's an eyewitness. In fact, it's important to him that they know he's an eyewitness. Even though he's not naming himself by name, he wants them to know who he is because he wants to say this testimony is true. How do you know it's true? Because I was there. But instead of saying I was there, he says he was there. <laughs> he speaks of himself in third person. He writes without using his name, but he wants at the same time to say, you know who this is. And you know that it's written by someone who was there, was an eyewitness to these things. This is actually a really important part of all of John's writings. First John, he spends many chapters talking about how he has seen what he's talking about. He was an eyewitness. He was at the Last Supper, so we know he's one of the apostles. Interesting in this passage, it doesn't even say apostle, it just says disciple. But we know he's one of the apostles of the Last Supper, and we know he's here at this moment at the end when Jesus reinstates Peter, and we know that he was rumored to live forever. And if you're looking around and you're reading the Gospel of John, and you're thinking, well, the person who wrote this is an apostle who's supposed to live forever, guess where all the other apostles are by the time you're reading the Gospel of John? They're dead. There's only one option left. <laughs> if he's saying, I am an apostle and an eyewitness, and I'm one that's still alive, and you could see how the rumor that he lived forever would be there because he's 100, almost 100 years old now, still trucking along. And he also identifies himself with one more thing, but hold off on that because we're going to come back to that. So first, let's just think about this. The facts point to him being an apostle. This is the only one of the apostles, only one of the four gospels, which does not mention John as an apostle of Jesus by name. 
In other words, when the other apostle gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they write about the story of Jesus, it is impossible not to include John in that story, right? He's a big part of that story. It would be like leaving Peter out of the story. It's impossible to write the story of Jesus without writing about John. And the other gospel writers reasonably simply use his name. They simply say, here was John. Of all the gospels, only this gospel leaves out John altogether, which if it was not written by John, there would be absolutely no reason to do. In fact, his absence is conspicuous. It seems like he's making a point. But John is there. He's just not mentioned by name. In place of John's name, we see a number of different identifiers. Sometimes John simply calls himself one of the sons of Zebedee or James's brother without even using his name. Sometimes he simply calls himself the other apostle. We have the story with Andrew and another disciple of John the Baptist. We don't know who that is, but it makes sense that it's John. Because why not mention him? You mentioned Andrew. Sometimes he just calls himself disciple, and then he uses one more identifier, but hold on to that. That's the same thing I said hold on to before. We'll talk about that in a second. Before we talk about the other way he identifies himself, the question is, why obscure your own name? Why is John leaving his name out, particularly given that he wants to stress the eyewitness nature of the account? Particularly given that he wants to say at the same time he doesn't use his name, he wants to say, you know who I am, you know who wrote this, you know I'm credible, because you know I was there. For all those reasons, why not just say, hey, it's me, John. Why be so ornery about hiding your name? at the same time that you make sure everybody knows who you are. There's really only one reason. It's because in the story that John writes, he wants to be a good journalist, and he doesn't want to become the story. Remember, people were waiting for the Gospel of John in a weird sort of way. The Gospel of John had press that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't have. People were asking John to write his story. They'd been waiting, and he'd been resisting, and now when he writes it, if it were happening today... It would be on all the, you know, the entertainment news shows. They'd be like, John is writing his gospel. John's book is coming out. Don't miss John's book. And all of a sudden, John becomes the story. And John doesn't want to become the story. So he wants to draw attention away from himself, knowing all along, everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows who wrote this. But he doesn't want it to become about him. So he writes the story in such a way he has to put himself in the story if he's going to be true to what happened. He can't pretend John didn't exist in Jesus' life, but he doesn't want to become the center. It's an act of humility to put the emphasis on Jesus, to say this story is about Jesus. It's not about me. I was there, and the only reason I even want to draw my attention to myself at all is to remind you I was there, and I know of what I write. I think he has a genuine discomfort of being too much a part of the story already. And yet it's necessary that he's part of the story. I don't think he's confused at all that people will know who he is. I don't think he's fooling them. I don't think he thinks anyone's going to go away and go, wow, I wonder who wrote that book. He was, as Paul calls him, a pillar of the church at this point. He was a preacher. He was a pastor. He was discipling. He was well known. At this moment, he's the only remaining apostle. He doesn't take a breath without people knowing what he's doing. But in this story, at this moment, he doesn't want to be the story. He feels compelled to add some things left out. He feels that he needs to write this story with this different perspective. 
but he doesn't want it to be about him. So he chooses to never use his name. Now that all makes perfect sense. That makes some sense. Now we understand, okay, he didn't use his name because he didn't want to draw the attention to himself. But there's one thing about that then that throws some of us. If you don't want to identify who you are, if the point is humility, then there's a particular identifier he does use, which looked at the wrong way, sounds like a boast. And why throw a boast into the middle of this humble desire to not be drawing attention to yourself? And it's the identifier that John uses, and it's here at the top of this paragraph. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. See, there's two ways to read that phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. One way is to read it, and I think it comes from our own insecurities and our own pride and our own hubris and our own jealousy, is to think about what it would mean if we wrote that as saying that we are the disciple that Jesus loved. John's saying, I'm the one Jesus loved. The other way is to read this is, is, is to see it in a way which matches everything we know about John's desire not to be the center of the story. If you think of it as his pride, there's an argument for that. You can say, well, it is true. Maybe John is saying I am loved more than the others because it is true that he, there are three examples of John and Peter and James' life where they get special access to Jesus, it appears where they are involved in events in Jesus' life, they get a special glimpse no one else gives. Number one, they get to see a resurrection nobody else sees before the Lazarus resurrection, somebody called Jairus' daughter. Number two, they get to see God's deity revealed to, before anyone else sees it up on this mountain called Mount of Transfiguration. And as Jesus is revealed as God, it's such an important and special moment that two celebrities show up, Elijah and Moses. Okay, that's a, that's a life-changing experience, no matter how you look at it. And only Peter, James, and John are there that we know. And then they also get to see Jesus in his grand humanity as he's in the garden, agonizing, agonizing over the death he's about to experience. It's those three he invites to be with him. You can argue there's a certain friendship, a certain closeness, a certain bond that he brings in. And maybe this is what John is saying, and he's boasting, and he's saying, I am one of the special. But that really doesn't make any sense. Because if that is what John is trying to say, then why wouldn't he use his name? If he's really all hot and bothered about saying, hey, I am that guy that Jesus loved more than the others, you know, me, John. <laughs> there would be no point in hiding your name if that's what you're trying to say. It's also worth noting that while we're familiar with this idea, and a lot of you have probably already heard about this, that Jesus, John refers to himself as this disciple whom Jesus loved, let's be clear, he actually only refers to himself that way four times in the entire Gospel of John. And the first time he does it isn't until the Last Supper. So throughout most of the story, he does not refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's also important to recognize, even in a passage like this, see, the problem is we see it as a point of contrast and comparison. As if he's saying, I am the disciple Jesus loved as compared to those other disciples that Jesus didn't love. And that would mean in this passage, who's the disciple that Jesus doesn't love? Peter. But if that's what John is saying, it takes out all the rest of our argument because who was also at all those special events and had that special bond with Jesus? Peter. <laughs> the problem is there's nothing in this sentence that requires it be relative or compared to other people at all. John is not saying the disciple that Jesus loved best. He's not saying the disciple that Jesus loved as opposed to all those other disciples that Jesus didn't love. In fact, John is saying, I know that Jesus loved me, but guess what? I also know he loved all of them too. 
And it's not a comparison. John isn't concerned or threatened by the fact that Jesus loved the others. That's not the point he's making. He's not saying, I'm the one he loved as opposed to them. See, if that's not what he's saying, I mean, you can do this too. You can claim to be the friend of so-and-so without claiming that so-and-so has no other friends, right? <laughs> but if that's the case, why use this as the identifier at all? I mean, why does he use this particular identifier? Why call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved if he loves everybody anyway? So to understand that, let's go back to the first time that John uses this moniker, that he chooses to identify himself this way, because I think that gives us a hint as to why it's in the story at all. It's John 13, 21 through 25, it's at the Last Supper. So they're all gathered together, and there's some things that happen, and then Jesus says this. We'll come back to the things that happen in a second. After, after he had said this, we'll come back to that, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the first time he uses the phrase, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? The indication is this is a private conversation. The other gospel writers don't even record it because they probably don't even know what happened. Because it's as if Peter is telling John quietly to ask and John quietly asks Jesus and Jesus actually answers John and that's why we suspect no one else knows because the answer he gives John would have spoiled the story for the rest of the apostles who seem to not know. <laughs> but let's get the scenario. Let's get the scene. Let's set the scene. What is this whole thing about John leaning back against Jesus? If you picture our particular seating arrangements, that makes no sense whatsoever. If you're sitting at a table and you're sitting in your straight back chair and you've got people on the left and the right of you, you know, picture the... The, the Da Vinci painting, although that's weird too, because there they're all sitting like a panel. No one sits on our side. But nonetheless, if you picture a, a table with people all sitting around the table, uh, it's really awkward to get up from your chair and lean against somebody. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But that's not how they're sitting. See, that's not how they ate. There was a Roman habit of eating, which the Jews, as at this moment Romans themselves, or at least under the Roman rule and Roman culture, that's not how they ate. Most likely there was a mat on the floor, not a table at all, or a very low table, perhaps. And as they sit at the table, they don't sit with their legs under it. There's no room. They sit leaning, reclining, lounging, probably on the floor. If you were really rich, you might have couches, but they didn't have couches. So they're just laying on the floor, kind of parallel to the mat or the table itself, with their feet on one end and their head on the other. And if you kind of picture it, you kind of stagger. So you've got one person's head here and the next person's head is like here and, and this guy's feet are hanging out behind that person. So they kind of staggered along the table that way. And it goes all the way around the table like that. Everybody's kind of lying down. And John is apparently right next to Jesus. And it shows you the intimacy of this position that when, when, he, when he leans back to whisper in Jesus' ear to ask him a question, he virtually lays his head on Jesus' chest. It's a super intimate moment. Our culture is so weird. Our, our world is so weird. We have a hard time understanding intimacy without throwing sex in. So please understand, despite the weird commentaries you'll read about this, this has nothing to do with that. 
But it is a moment of intimacy. It is a moment of affection and love and comfort where John just lays his head back on Jesus' chest and says, who? Who is it, Jesus? And you can almost understand then it's like a, a game of telephone. You know, Peter was probably next to John and, or very close and he kind of leans back and says, ask Jesus because he's way up there and I can't get to him. It's the one moment of discretion we see in Peter's life, by the way. <laughs> and John leans back and says, who? Who? So that's kind of the scene, that's kind of the, the intimate feel. And there is this affection that is there between John and Jesus, there's no question. It's not exclusively between John and Jesus, but it is there between John and Jesus. And it's this moment, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But to understand that, let's get a little deeper look in the context. Now you know the scene, you know the setting. Let's look at the context. What happened before this? What led to this moment? And that takes us back to the beginning of this chapter, John 13, verses 3 through 5. And it starts with a really interesting phrase. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Before you go any further, wow, what an intro to whatever's about to happen. Jesus knew he had all power and that he was God. John, John is a wordy guy. He says things poetically, but I think it is fair to say that he came from God as returning to God means he was God. We know that from earlier passages in the book of John. That's what John believes. So this is basically saying Jesus knows who he is and he knows his authority and he knows that he has all power. Just stop for a moment. Just be honest for a second. If you suddenly had all power and knew it, what would the next sentence be? What would you do with all power? What would you do if you could do it? And, and I'll give you the benefit of the doubt it's something good. Let's just pretend it is. Let's all go with our better natures at the moment. And let's pretend that if you had all power, you'd do something good, but it would be grand, wouldn't it? It would be something that showed that power. Maybe cure cancer. Right? Maybe, maybe erase death. <laughs> I mean, so many things you could do to begin a paragraph this way. Jesus knew who he was and knew his power. And knowing this, this is what he does. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Wow. Do you really need all power to do that? <laughs> what, a, what a waste of potential, Jesus. What a weird connection John's making. Because Jesus knew who he was, this is what he chooses to do. And let's look at what he really chooses to do. Let's talk about washing the feet for a second. So let's give ourselves a little bit more scene setting here. Remember that most everybody's barefoot. That's just the norm. If they're not barefoot, they're in the Jerusalem cruisers. That's what they used to call them when I used to wear them. But they never wore sandals with socks because they had better fashion sense. No, they just didn't have socks. So they would wear sandals or they would wear, you know, these, these, these flimsy shoes or they were barefoot. Frequently just would have been barefoot. And they walk along paved roads? No, dusty roads. You know who else walks along those same roads frequently? Horses. You know what horses don't restrict themselves from doing whenever they go for a walk? You do if you've ever ridden a horse. <laughs> so they're walking on this dusty road through dirt and manure and just filth and grime. And then, remember how you sit at the table to eat dinner? That means your feet are near somebody's head. 
let's, let's just be straightforward about this. Not in their face, but near their head. So because of that, it became really important when you had people over to your house. It only made sense. It was the smallest of courtesies to wash their feet. Makes sense. But even though it makes sense, it doesn't mean it was a pleasant job, right? This is filthy, grimy, dirty work, and it's demeaning. The host wouldn't typically do it. The host would have a servant do it. And you can be sure it would be low man on the totem pole. It would be the servant that had no pull. <laughs> it would be the one washing the feet of everybody there. It's embarrassing and strange that Jesus chooses to wash their feet. This is not a polite, sort of easy, simple, symbolic act of service. This is a stinky, demeaning, necessary, but really gross act of service. And there's a certain intimacy to it, isn't there? Get your hands on people's feet. And this is what Jesus is doing. And this is what John says Jesus did knowing his full power, knowing that he was God. Peter is so embarrassed, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, that he tries to prevent Jesus from doing this. He just says, this is not right. And in a sense, Peter's not wrong. This is very strange. Jesus chooses to do this intimate and demeaning act. And he, before he does it, John points out that he does it knowing that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Let's put this in really simple, clear, stark terms. Jesus knew beyond doubt he was better than every last one of them. I mean, let's be clear. We can say that. God can say that. It's not hubris for God to say, I'm better than you because he is in every respect. He knew he was better than all of them. Infinitely so. He wasn't confused about it. See, he didn't do this act of service because he didn't know who he was. He didn't do this act of service because he thought he had to. He didn't do this act of service because he felt manipulated into it. The point is, he did this act of service because in the full knowledge of who he was, all the power he had, that he had zero obligation to do it, that he did not have to do this, he chose to do it. He didn't do it in spite of who he was. What John seems to be telling us is he did it because of who he was. But there are very few acts of service that we do with that much sort of free choice and confidence in who we are. There's no sense of him being forced to do it. He's making a really clear choice and he tries to make it clear to them. He does this and as he does it, he's trying to make it clear to them that he's choosing to do it. Why? Because he's trying to give them a softer demonstration of something he's been trying to tell them for months that they keep refusing to hear. I'm here to die for you. Talk about demeaning. Talk about weird. Well, they aren't getting that. So he says, let me show it to you. And he chooses to serve them in the most demeaning way he can imagine at that moment. As if to say to them, I come here to choose to do this for you. I come here. I called you to this upper room and you probably all wondered why. And you thought maybe I was going to announce my kingship. Guess what? I called you here to wash your feet. And I do it because that's who I am. Right after he washes their feet, he begins to talk about the reality that one of them will betray him. And, and as he talks about it, we're told it troubles him. So this is not some theological point. It's an emotional one. As Jesus is talking about what's to come, he looks out at his best friends and he says, 
one of you is going to betray me. Because he wants to share it with them. Because he wants them to know his pain. Because he wants them to understand what he's feeling. But put these two things together and you get a really weird lesson that the apostles are learning. They're learning that Jesus loves them and chooses to serve them in ways they don't deserve. And then immediately on the heels of that, they learn that Jesus knows that they are unable to love him back. That's huge. That's crazy. He doesn't say, I love you and I know I'm going to get love in return. <laughs> he says, I love you and I'm washing your feet. And you know whose feet he washes in this process? Judas. He didn't wait till Judas was gone to do this. He could have. He could have just wait delayed this a little bit. He says to them, I love you and I choose to serve you. And then immediately tells them, and I know you're unable to love me back. And I think as John looks back at this history and he sees a God, a Jesus who shares to him that he loves them more clearly and deeply than they deserve. And I think John looks back as he's writing this history and he realizes that this is a moment that things changed for him. He realized this is a moment where he stopped being John, son of thunder, where he stopped being John, son of Zebedee, where he stopped being John, the apostle, where he stopped being John of the inner circle. He stopped being John, the fisherman, or any of the other numerous ways he could be identified at this moment, at this time, as he saw this Jesus who loved him enough to wash his feet and yet was also telling him, you will not love me back. John realizes the only thing that matters in his life, the only identity he cares, the only way he wants to be known, the only way he can even begin to grasp who he is, is simply as somebody who's loved by Jesus. See, John chooses to identify himself this way, not because he's trying to be clever, but because as he's scrambling to figure out how to identify himself, what other narrative trick is he going to use to not use his name? He realizes that every other identifier he could use, his name, his human relationships, his job, his behavior, even his commitment to the Lord, even his position as apostle, that every other identifier he could use is shallow and superficial compared to the one core thing that he knows about himself, which is that he's loved by God. Part of our problem with this phrase, the reason we see it as a boast is because if we say, hey, I am a friend of the president, I'm not, but if I said to you, I am a friend of Joe Biden. When I say that, I'm actually trying to say something about myself, aren't I? I'm trying to say I'm the kind of person that presidents are friends with. Really. But see, John isn't saying I'm the kind of person that messiahs are in love with. <laughs> That's not his point. He's simply saying, the most important thing about me that you should know is Jesus loves me. But you know what? He knows that's also the most important thing that Peter knows. And he knows it's the most important thing that James knows. And he knows it's the most important thing that Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Stephen and all these people that we've talked about know. Yeah, Stephen's not an apostle, but we talked about him. <laughs> I ran out of names, forgive me. He's not saying, all I know about myself is Jesus loved me more than you. Mom loved me best. He's saying, in everything in my life, the thing that has shaped me most 
The thing that has made me most mean is that Jesus loved me. That's who I am. You want to know who I am, I says, he says? I'm the disciple Jesus loves. He's so convinced of this. He knows that nothing else changes him more. Nothing else defines him better. He doesn't call himself the devoted apostle. He could do that. He calls himself the loved apostle. He doesn't call himself friend to Jesus. He calls himself one whom Jesus befriended. He doesn't claim a greater commitment or claim or love on his own account, but only that he recognizes that he is one whom Jesus loves. In fact, the real truth about John being known as the apostle of love is not that he preaches that we should love each other, but that what he really preaches is that we should wallow in God's love for us. What he really does is say, all I know is I'm loved by Jesus. And guess what? That should be all you know too. He doesn't love me better than you. He doesn't, he isn't threatened by the idea that you might learn that Jesus loves you as much as you love John. He encourages it. Everything he writes drips with this understanding. He does not spend near as much time telling us to love each other as he does telling us to know that God loves us. In fact, one of the most, if I asked you out of the blue, what do you think is the most famous verse in the Bible? What do you think more non-Bible readers know? What verse do you think they might be able to quote above all other verses? What would you say? John 3, 16, which says what? For God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. What does John think we need to believe? That God so loved you. He didn't come to the world to judge you and condemn you. He came to the world to love you. He came to the world to rescue you. He came to the world to save you. He came to the world to lift you out of the sins which already condemn you. In 1 John 1, 3, 1 through 3, one of my very favorite verses in all of scripture, he says this, see what great love, see, that word see, it's too small, it's too little. Really, it's behold, it's, it's hark, it's, Hey, look up here. That's what it is. Look at what great love the Father has lavished on us. It is great not only that we have a Father who has great love, but that he lavishes that great love on us. Do you see that? It's not only a huge love, but he's like extremely generous with it. See with what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. His love is so powerful. His love is so perfect that if he says we're children of God, guess what? He's right. And if you don't think you are, you're the one who's wrong. But what's the bottom line? What is it we see in being called children of God? Is it, is it something about us to boast in? No, it's something about God to boast in. It is his great love for us. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. Guess what? It gets better. But what we know, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's clear that one of the things John, who walked with Jesus, sees about Jesus is what? He's the lover. That's what we'll see. That's what we'll see when we see him. And we'll see that we're like him. 
Because his love has changed us. Because his love changes us. And then he says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. He goes on, 1 John 4, 7, 11, he says, dear friends, let us love one another. Here it is, here's that exhortation to love, but listen to what he says about why. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Please hear, John is super careful with his words. He does not say here, God is loving. He says, God is love. Everything that you understand about love, everything that you love about love, everything that you seek about love, it's God. It's God. There is nothing about love that is not part of who God is. And there's nothing in God that is not love. He goes on. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Hear this closely. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But do you see how that's really an aside? It's an important aside, but it's an aside. John's message here is how loved we are. His secondary message is it really makes sense that we should love one another because of who he is. When he encourages us to love one another, he does it on the basis that love is not that we loved God, but that he loved us. See, consider John, when we look at Peter later, one of the things we'll see about Peter is that Peter is a man who loves to make declarations of undying love and then prove how foolish they are. John is making no declaration of undying love for himself, but only for God. The truth is what changed John was not the resurrection first. What changed John first was that he saw himself most importantly among all things as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then he spent the rest of his days trying to help people understand that you, you are also the disciple whom Jesus loves. Look, just to be personal for a moment, in my four decades as a Christian and my three decades as a pastor, I, I truly can think of nothing that has been more important than this message. I have become firmly convinced this is the essence of the gospel message. This is what we refer to as the good news, that you are loved. He shows this love by his death on the cross, but it's the love that drives everything. Our inability to see this, I believe, is also the core of all our struggles. And that becoming convinced of this is the key to seeing God. This single fact about God, that he is love, is not in competition with his holiness or his glory or his justice. Every once in a while, people will say, if we talk too much about God's love, if we wallow in God's love, we need to keep it balanced. We think of God as a weird entity who needs to be kept in balance as if the characteristics of God are constantly warring with themselves. And so it's up to us to make sure we don't let one tip too far. When the tr result, the truth is, that's not a description of God at all. God's extreme. Do you understand that? He is the most extreme entity in the, in the universe. Anything you say about God will be true in the extreme. Do you see that? Say God is powerful. Do we ever have to balance that? No, he is completely 100% all powerful. 
If you say God is pure, do, do we have to balance that? Maybe he's not completely pure. You know, maybe he's a little less than pure so he can stay balanced. No. Anything you say about God, if you say he's present, he's present everywhere. God is God. And by being God, it means that every statement you can make about him, if it's true at all, it is true to the extreme. So when we say that God is love and we want to wallow in what it means that God loves us, there should never be a need to balance that. Holiness is not in competition with love. Holiness means otherness. It means God is so different from us. Well, guess what? His love is one of the ways in which he is so different from us. His glory is not in competition with his love. Some people say, does God do things to glorify himself or because he loves us? And the answer is yes. Because it is to his glory to show how much love he is. The gospel glorifies him because it reveals his love. Because we can't imagine another creature in the universe, certainly not a creature of all power, who would choose to save the world the way God did. Who would even choose to create a world that he would then have to save. Let's be honest. You or I would have quit before we started. Love is not at odds with his justice. Anybody who has truly experienced injustice knows that people who don't care about justice are not loving people. If you, in fact, I would say that love is the very thread of which his holiness and his glory and his justice are woven. It is the thread which ties everything else in him together. If you want to grow, if you want to see God, if you want to overcome, if you want freedom from yourself, from your insecurities and your sins, if you want to be changed, I believe it begins here. And I don't even think there's an advanced class. As John would say, let's get this one down and we can move on. And then what we discover is that this is infinite. Taste and see what it means to reframe everything you are as the disciple whom Jesus loves. What if that was truly the core of who you were? What if nothing else about you mattered as much as that? What if the only thing you felt the need to defend before the accuser was the reality that Jesus loves me? And you put everything you were into defending that. There's no way to be too focused on such a hope. What does John say? Anyone who has this hope in the previous verse purifies himself as he is pure. This is what leads to our sanctification. Some seem concerned that this will make us self-centered or self-aggrandizing or licentious people, but that's not what we learn from John's life, and it's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says, instead, this hope is this certainty in God's ongoing forever love is what purifies us. It's this hope, says John, which leads to greater love, our ability to love others. It's this hope which takes us out of our constant self-absorption and enables us to even love others. Jesus knew who he was as an eternally loved member of the Trinity. We're going to talk about the Trinity in a few weeks when we're done with our apostleship series. And this is one of the amazing things is to think of an etern- a God who is in his Trinity in a relationship, which explains to us how he could be loving forever. Jesus knew who he was as an eternally loved member of the Trinity and it enabled him to serve his apostles with freedom and no resentment. You also are unshakably loved by God. How might embracing, wallowing, and digging in that change you? Paul prays something for the Ephesians which has always struck me as incredible. A prayer which is so powerful and so beautiful. 
almost beyond my ability to believe. Almost, but not quite. He prays quite simply that the Ephesians would know the love of God. But then on the heels of praying, they would know the love of God. He says that the love of God is so large as to be unknowable. So then on the heels of that, he says, the love of God is so large as to be unknowable that we need the powerful miracle of God to lead us to see that God is loving. And if we can begin to grasp God's love, he says, then we will know the fullness of God. And so he prays for the Ephesians that God will perform this miracle in their hearts to know as John did that we are loved to live a life driven by the idea that we are loved. I actually just want to pray that prayer for you tonight. I want to read it to you. I don't have it memorized. So my eyes will be open. But I want to encourage you to keep your eyes open. And here's why. A lot of us, when we go to prayers, particularly at the end of a teaching, it's the moment we start to fade out. Let's be honest. It's the moment we start thinking about what's coming next. It's the moment we start rushing to the Amen. It's the moment we assume the important content is done. I want you to keep your eyes open because I want you to read the prayer. I want you to read the words as I pray it to you because I want you to be struck by the enormity of it. I want you to wrestle with the strangeness of it. I want you to marvel at the words and I want you most of all to desire the essence of this prayer. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to add nothing of my own words as soon as this prayer is done. So as soon as it's done, if you want to, you can wait till the prayer is done, but as soon as it's done, if you want to turn off Facebook, that'd be great. After that, we'll give it a moment. We'll talk Zoomers. But before we do that, I want to encourage you to add your own silent prayers and agreement when we're done. Don't even say amen out loud. I know it's a habit, it's a tradition, it's one we're going to dispense with at this moment. We'll come back. I won't even say amen. I will just stop at the end of the verse and I want you to pray what you can of this prayer yourself. Reach out and seek that confidence that John had that you are a disciple whom Jesus loved because I truly, truly believe what Paul says in this prayer. Reach for the largeness of what Paul says in this prayer. We will give you just a few minutes of silence when I'm done reading the prayer for you to pray it silently yourself, to seek to intimately know this love of God in yourself. Fair enough? For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Most churches believe in the value of small groups but a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, 
underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.